Yeah. And um, I'm Junior Harris. Uh, I'm gonna read the Salt of the Earth to y'all. Um, it's come from Matthew. Y'all the salt of the earth, but if salt does, if it loses saltness, how will it become salty again? If it's good for nothing, expect to let known away and tampered under people's feet. You are the light of the world. City on top of a hill can't get hidden, neither or do pleasure like a lamb and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house in the same way let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your father who is in heaven amen god's word for god's people So uh, nobody quite knows where that song that we sang together earlier comes from. Um, it's really hard when we did the song sheets to try to attribute it. It's, but it, one thing is for certain, it's really been successful because it's hard to graduate kindergarten without mastering this little light of mine, right? We've all sung it. And uh, and. If we're not careful, it can be a little precious to us. I mean, it is precious, but it's also more. Um, this, this moreness, this intensity of that uh, simple little song um, really came to the fore a couple years ago as this group stared directly into a wall of battle-geared white supremacists and looked them right in the face. And tensions were surging and hateful words were uh, peeking above the den of the Charlottesville crowds. And then a, a clergyman and a musician named Reverend Sekou started just an acapella version, no instruments needed version of this infectious and diffusing chorus. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. There was a, a frail and a fragile chorus in the face of such hate. It was a weak elixir in the midst of such a powder keg of conflict. It started with the voice of a few clergy people, and then it grabbed on to all these other voices. And then uh, you could, you could kind of see the lights turn on to people as they recognized the melody, and they pulled it out of their memories into the moment um, where they, from when they were introduced to it into this new setting. So this, it's almost like they were reaching back and trying to grab some time in their life that was simpler and smaller and a lot more peaceful. And, and when they sang, it was a small flickering candle in the midst of aggressive darkness. But it mattered that they were singing that song. I've, I've often, one of the things that I, that 
as much as I love some of the new songs that, that we get to sing together and that we're not bound to a hymnal and some of those hymnal songs can be kind of stuffy even though we also sing some hymnal songs, one of the things that I'm most nervous about by not using a hymnal is what's going to happen when we have to visit people in the hospital and we don't have a PowerPoint to help us. We, d we don't have these, this canon of songs together, but we always have songs like This Little Light of Mine. We continue this week in Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, or it might as well have been a Sermon on the Lot. Maybe I should be preaching from that side of the tilt of this uh, so it can kind of be mountain-like. And we realize that Jesus isn't stingy with a blessing. He's not afraid to kind of furl some eyebrows as he looks out on the disinherited and the hurting and gives them the good news that they are on the right track, that they're seeing the world aright, and that they have an inheritance in God's world as it is becoming. So we have all those beatitudes, all those blessings, happy are, blessed are. And now this week, what Junie just read, he offers kind of two final blessings that kind of break the mold a bit. They kind of break his format, his happy R format. He, rather than these blanket statements about the happy blessedness of the poor, meek, and mourning, here he looks right into their eyes, I think. And he says, you, like you, who I'm looking at, you are the very salt of the world. You are the salt of the cosmos. You're elemental. You're real. He looks at them and says, you, you are the very light of the world. Illuminating. Unable to be snuffed out. Whereas the sermon in general is kind of a recapitulation of Moses on the mountain. We talked about that a little bit that the, the liberator of God's people would go up on this mountain and come down with all of this good news for them. Um, I think Jesus is kind of remixing something a little different here. There's this Roman saying in Latin. I, I wish I knew Latin. I could give it to you in the Latin, but the Roman saying, you wouldn't know what it said anyways. Um, <laughs> I was a star Latin one student in ninth grade, and I know nothing. Uh, but this Roman saying that I think Jesus might have been messing with a little bit is, there is nothing more useful than salt and sun. There is nothing more useful than salt and sun. That feels so Roman, so um, empire-based. It's, it's about use. It's about uh, how things work well. It's kind of one of those sneaky blessings that if you think about it, you, it's kind of vacuous, and you don't really know what it's actually saying or who it's actually blessing. It's kind of like some of the slogans of our American empire. They sound good, but they offer little hope for those who uh, can't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, for those who get chewed up and spit out by a graceless system that looks at people for how they'll fit in and what they can contribute rather than names them for their already blessedness. That's the flip that is happening here. Jesus is naming them as already blessed. 
already salt, already light, even if they don't know it. And he calls them into more full hope and community. Salt and sun are helpful for Roman building, but Jesus has a little more of something to say. He says, y'all are the salt of the earth. Down the hill, the kids are taste testing two different kinds of popcorn, one with and one without salt. I think the winner of that competition is a foregone conclusion, right? Here's the thing about salt. It's magical. Salt is magical. It's common. It has a taste of its own, but it's at its best when it makes everything it touches better. Salt is pure. Salt preserves I love that the process of preserving with salt is called curing. (laughs) There's something healthful about that, even if that thing that it's curing is a uh, belly of uh, pork, right? That's not very healthful. For all these noble purposes of salt, salt's also not afraid to get dirty and do the work in a pinch. Even table salt can defrost a windshield or a sidewalk, right? Salt works. In calling them salt, and calling us salt, Jesus is proclaiming good news over us. That we not only have a valuable identity, but we also have much work to do in this world out of that identity, out of that saltiness. The message translation here says, You're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? This means at our best, we are doing the vivifying work that is only fitting for a resurrection people. Bringing things to life. Bringing out the God flavors of this creation towards a new creation that has already come upon us. This might not be visible or might not be noted. It means that we spread out too much salt in one place is is not good news. So we need to spread out and embed in our places, embed in this place, so we can deeply invest in the lives of our neighbors. Not to get out of them what we want, but to help pull out of them what God has already put into them. That's, That's the beauty of salt. That's the magic of salt. This is kind of counterintuitive work in a lot of ways. For those who walk with Jesus are let in on this kind of cosmic secret. It's an open secret, but we kind of know how the story is going to end, and and that's beautiful and hopeful and comforting, but it can also make us a little arrogant sometimes. That can really do a number on us and make us feel like we have to be experts or know-it-alls. We're always so scared to tell people about our faith because they might ask that question that we don't have a good answer for, right? But it, it can also... If you do feel confident and you do feel like you are, gr- are good at having answers and kind of faith-splaining people, you, it might make you kind of defensive. It, it might make you a defender or like a, have a posture of a soldier rather than a scout. But salt, salt's curious. Salt asks, salt asks questions and is quick to listen and slow to speak and certainly slow to become angry. The second salt overwhelms a meal, it's ruined. Salt shouldn't be overwhelming. And salt is never the meal in and of itself. (laughs) 
as there's a missionary bishop named Leslie Newbegin that I love. He uh, ministered in India and Asia for years and years, and so long that when he finally came back to America, and we have a few missionaries in the congregation that they might have had some of this experience of being gone so long and things changing a little bit, or at the very least recalibrating from what they remember, and they come back, they come back, and they don't recognize the place or the things that they used to love in quite the same way. And so Newbegin came back to Britain after being gone for a long time, and realized that the West is the one that needed to be. Uh, evangelized to rather than from even though he had been sent from the West he realized that they they were in need of some good news and so uh, new again I love this quote about salt he says a missionary must be the salt which dissolves into the meat disappears and dies in it <laughs> that's a really challenging statement that's really not a great brochure for missionary work right so friends Y'all are the salt. Let's stay salty. This is a lot <laughs> easier for some of us than others. I'm not looking at anyone in particular right now. Let's stay diffusing joy, making places better than when we found them, surprising even ourselves with how flavor-filled mundane places and things and activities and people can be. Even coming to understand how contrast and difference and the right amount of dissonance can create something beautiful in the world. That's something that salt teaches us. Have you ever had salt on, a, on watermelon? It's actually pretty good. Sounds strange. Have you ever had kettle corn, right? A Wendy's Frosty with french fries, oof. Maple bacon donut, right? A little bit of difference, a little bit of dissonance. When I was a kid, I could not understand helping my mom make her famous uh, Toll House cookie batter, why there was salt in a recipe for cookies. That was so sweet and rich and delicious. But salt teaches that, us that in this saccharine world that wants always only sweet and immediate gratification, salt isn't necessarily the most obvious or the most even welcomed at the table we might actually be the missing ingredient. <laughs> and then Jesus continues. You are the light of the world. You are the very light of the world. I assume uh, a Jewish Messiah had like a southern drawl and spoke in the second person plural, so he probably said, y'all are the, are the light of the world, right? This is a really similar instruction. This is a blessing. This is a statement of fact. This is their constitution, who they are. This is who they already are. You are the light. You are the light. Jesus, in John's gospel, says about himself, I am the light of the world. So uh, when, when he says that about someone else, it's pretty important and our ears should perk up. This is who and what they are. This is who and what we are. A difficulty in us receiving this instruction is how much power is sitting in this parking lot right now, in these camp chairs. No, we don't have any local politicians here. We're not going to like blow you away with our bank accounts. When our people make the local paper, it's for how smart they are and how creative they are. But there is a lot of, of uh, 
blessing and a lot of resources and a lot of privilege sitting in this parking lot, so it's a little hard to crack a code on that blessing. You are the light of the world. We realize um, that Jesus is calling blessed, is make, making torchbearers those who are least likely. So uh, if, if this fits you too easily, if it makes too much sense, be a little weary. Jesus is looking out a, on a crowd of people who no one thinks are the light of the world and is calling them light, who no one thinks are salty in anything other than a derogatory sense and saying, y'all are salt. Jesus is calling these people blessed. Like the last day of class, Jesus is giving out superlatives, and he gives the most likely to succeed superlative to the kid who spent more time with the principal than in her classroom. That's kind of what is happening here. And America has a really funny and tragic relationship with this image of being the light of the world and uh, the next kind of extended image of being the city on the hill. Ever since those words came out of John Winthrop's mouth, they've animated our imaginations. To be honest, there may have been a time where that felt more true, where a ragtag group leaving Britain felt more like passing through the Red Sea from Egypt, but that boat has long sailed and in these times we're a lot more Babylon and Egypt than we are Israel, right? We've gotten really good at creating artificial light. I wonder if these days this blessing, you are the light of the world, you are the city on the hill, would more likely, if Jesus was bodily around right now, would come from Jesus and he'd be standing on our southern border with his back to El Paso facing Juarez and saying, you are the light of the world. That, that might be what is actually happening for Jesus right now. But here's the thing. For God's people, light is always derivative. Here's what I mean by that. Our light, we're, we're, we don't generate our own light and our light doesn't belong to us. We're always way more moon than sun. Moon than sun. We don't make it happen. We reflect God's goodness. We bear God's image. So I think this might be another little dig on that Roman slogan, which relishes in kind of the machismo delusion that there can or should be uh, more than one sun. The new creation shown in the book of Revelation shows that in the future there won't even be a sun because God will be our light. That's, that'll be the light that we see by and all the light that we need. All of the SPF we've been putting on all of our lives, pun intended, is a pale preparation for God's presence, that we glow from God's goodness. But light, even the around our house, we have a multitude of failing flashlights because they get left on and they need more batteries. Even little lights, uh, the flashlight that's almost completely burnt out, still makes an impact in total darkness. Still makes its way into little nooks and crannies. In the pitch black, even the smallest light can be seen. And light, like salt, only blinds if it tries to be the main event. Light blinds if it tries to be the, the show rather than what things are shown by. 
Light is for seeing as salt is for tasting. Light reveals and guides and reflects and revels in what is. And unlike the lightless countryside, if anyone's grown up on land, you can actually see stars because it gets real dark real fast. Unlike the short days and short nights of that sort of environment, Jesus calls them, calls us, to be a city, a city on a hill, a city full of light, full of all the noise made possible by longer days and extra light. When I first moved to this city in 2006, people inside of Durham were really into Durham, but people outside of Durham were not into the city, right? Uh, people told me, make sure you lock your doors, uh, when you're driving, <laughs> make sure all of these things, people who hadn't been to Durham in a while also. But they'd say things like, isn't that city dangerous, or uh, you don't want to be there, things like that. But nowadays, those concerns get voiced for certain parts of town, right? Durham is on the uptick. But Jesus also knew all of these realities of the city. And he especially knew that part of town, quote-unquote. And he stuck with the allegory. A city on the hill can really get us out of whack if, if, if we try to, to interpret our way out of it. It should be a city with all its messiness and all of its problems. He's not saying you are a gated community on a hill, that you have a manicured lawn on a hill, that you are in a suburban, uh, suburban oasis on a hill. Like... God's good news, God's new inbreaking reality is made in the city with all of the nearness and messiness of having neighbors. So neighbors are not a problem. Neighbors are the way that God is, is bringing the good news into your life. This is how and where God is working. Cities are full, and road cones remind us that they always need maintenance, Cranes remind us that the new is always around the corner. Sirens remind us that there is always conflict. The noise reminds us that there are all sorts of life crisscrossing and intersecting right on our front porch. We meet each week for the whole time of, of Oak Church, six going on seven years of meeting for midweek morning prayer on the front porch, the front steps of Oak Church at 7.30 on Wednesday. This is a little preaching the announcements. Uh, if you join us, there are times when you cannot pray loud enough because that city bus or that construction truck or the, the corona truck trying to make a sharp U-turn into the food line uh, is so loud, and that's how we prefer it. <laughs> Because it shows us, it, it makes us shout over uh, the reality of the life that is happening in this neighborhood. The people going to and from work, the school buses going to school, the, the people talking and the people living and the people hurting and the people rejoicing. And our prayers are embedded right in that. When we say the Lord's Prayer, I hope our eyes are open as we ask God to come on earth as it is in heaven. So y'all are light. Y'all are salt. Y'all are a city. I want to close with uh, one of the commentators on this, uh, Dale Bruner, reminds us that in, this, in these blessings, uh, what Jesus is really up to then, and I think still now, he says that Jesus will not light us 
And for him, lighting us, uh, initiating this light in us is when Jesus told his followers, come follow me. And Jesus is still telling each and every one of us, come follow me. Just come, follow me. I will give you rest, but I will also give you work. Come, follow me. He says that, that Jesus will not light us, will not beautify us nine times, will, will not tell us twice that you folks are the most important people of the world, and then stick us under a bucket. Will not put us under a basket. That the one who lights us up will also put us on the table. So that's, that's where we'll close today. That Jesus has called you and lit you up and put you on a table so that your light can shine and your salt can be accessible to everyone who is hungry in this world and everyone who uh, is looking to become even more flavorful in this world. And our movement in Jesus is always towards this table where we remember and Pastor Meg will help us in a little bit and Gary will come now and, and join our, our prayers together as, as, we, as we answer this call to be salt and light. Will you all pray with me? Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your, your gift to just take these normal things that we can relate to and set them on fire for us so that we can imagine uh, your calling and realize your calling in this world. Lord, make us salt that we might purify, that we might flavor, that we might preserve, that we... Uh, might um, be part of the recipe of what you're doing in this world. Lord, make us light that we can see, that we can help others see, and that we can shine a spotlight on what you're doing in our lives and around us. We give you thanks. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.